listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome to Wildlife, Wild Places. I'm your host, Donna Haleson. Thanks for tuning in to this first episode in this brand new series on Pet Life Radio. We'll be opening each one of these shows with a feature story. We'll end each one with Nature News, a segment that will center on current and creative efforts being expended towards preserving, conserving, and advocating for wildlife and wild habitats in national parks, wilderness settings, and other naturescapes around the world. I'll announce opportunities you might find of interest, and on my accompanying blog, I'll share links that will provide more information. As we launch in, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I've been on the road full-time, adventuring, photographing, and writing since September of 2010. My companions along the way have been my husband, Gene, and our two old English sheepdogs, Mac and Molly. Sad to say, we lost our darling Mac to cancer in the spring of 2015, and that convinced me to end the On the Road with Mac and Molly show that I had been hosting on Pet Life Radio. I've served as a nature guide and instructor at Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. I've tromped through the swamp and canoed through the mangrove tunnels in Florida's Big Cypress. I've worked on a ranch in the Badlands of South Dakota and flowed in to Prudhoe Bay and Barrow on the Arctic Ocean, where caribou had to be shooed from the runway. I've just wrapped up two book projects, one on the Western Everglades that I edited and another volume celebrating the national parks created in collaboration with landscape photographer Clyde Butcher. His images, my words. I have spent delight-filled days exploring glorious natural wonders, from the majestic Grand Tetons to the hoodoo-filled Bryce Amphitheater, from the lush and soul-soothing Smokies to the barren salt flats of Death Valley's Badwater Basin, from the Sanderling-bedecked white sand beaches of Topsail Island to the otherworldly cinder gardens and lava fields of the craters of the moon. Combined with extended road trips taken before 2010, I visited every state in the Union and every province and territory in Canada, save for Nunavut. I've also explored a good bit of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Along the way, my love of wildlife and wild places has deepened into a more fervent advocacy, a more ardent passion. And along the way, I've met fascinating people, from gold panners and a family of wild mushroom pickers to moonshiners and mariachi bands. I've monitored condors and fed tigers, and I've learned from park rangers, wildlife biologists, dark sky advocates, ecotourism professionals, authors, photographers, journalists, animal control officers, leaders of wildlife foundations, artists, veterinarians, animal curators in wildlife sanctuaries and zoos, folks in animal rehabilitation centers, and other conservationists pouring out their lives in the effort to protect and preserve the world's wild creatures and wild spaces. My hope, my prayer, is that listeners will find not only information, but inspiration in all that is offered in these episodes. Well, let's take a break. When we return, I'll share some stories of wild encounters and something of a lament about what we would miss if we could never again hear the voices of nature. Please, sit, stay. We'll be right back after this pause.
At Red Barn, our pet food ingredients work overtime. They aren't just there for show. Dandelion greens work to maintain a healthy digestive system. Salmon oil works to enhance the immune system. Green-lipped mussels work to support joint health. These hard-working ingredients support your dog's active, healthy life. Look at the label. We want you to. Red Barn Naturals Pet Food. Simply the best. Find it in your local pet specialty store. Try our grain-free stews. The only pet food with Red Barn Bully Sticks. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wildlife, Wild Places on the Pet Life Radio Network. Well, from the time our daughter Brooke was little more than a toddler, through her teen years and even to her adulthood, she and I made regular visits to the Audubon Sanctuary in our hometown of Ipswich, Massachusetts. There we would meander down the woodland paths, climb up the drumlin and esker, and stroll through the meadows to our favorite spot, the rockery. We would settle ourselves into one of the hideaways by the rockery pond to listen to the pickerel frogs and to search for birds, painted turtles, and other wild things. In every moment, we would breathe in and revel in the beauty of the created order. After our sit, we'd scramble up and around the cave-like rock formations near the water. A number of years have passed since those sublime hours in the rockery. Brooke is now married and has toddlers of her own. For a time, she lived on the other side of the world, and she and I turned to other avenues for our unpacking. Skype, Facebook, email, the post, the telephone. With my husband retired, with my work as a writer transportable, and with Brooke and her family so far away, Jean and I decided, as I mentioned at the outset of this program, to launch into a time of wayfaring and adventuring. We sold or packed away most of our belongings and set out on a journey across North America. Our goal was to seek out experiences that would fall outside of our experiences. As I reflect, I note that some of the most remarkable moments over not only these years, but over my entire life, have come through surprise encounters in the natural world. As I prepared the narrative for this program, I recalled a trip I made with friends to Zimbabwe. We were in that country working as journalists, but were able to take a few days away from researching and writing to visit Wange National Park and Victoria Falls. We chose as home base for our trip Wange Safari Lodge, a 100-room hotel that sits on 33,000 acres abutting the 3.5 million acre national park. Most of the lodge's rooms and suites overlook a waterhole and savanna bush and all come equipped with mosquito nets. On our first evening at the lodge, after a buffet of traditional African fare, my friends and I made our way at sundown toward the waterhole. There we spied, silhouetted in the half-light glow, a herd of more than 40 elephants coming in to take an end-of-the-day drink. The adults strode in slowly, and their young clung close to their sides. I couldn't hold back the tears and found myself weeping and weeping, overcome by so many emotions. I felt so privileged to be in their presence. But there was even more to the moment, for behind them in the distance, I could see herds of impala, zebra, and wildebeest racing across the savannah. The images from that night are indelibly stamped on my heart and memory, and I find I am, even now, near to tears as I place myself again in that space, in that moment, at Wonge. Magic. 
The morning after this encounter, one of my companions and I were awakened by a commotion in a neighboring room. Our friend Diane had disregarded the warnings of the hotel staff and had left the sliding glass door to her patio slightly ajar. She'd had quite the rude awakening when she opened her eyes to find a vervet monkey cavorting about her room. After some loud hand clapping and shouting, the three of us were finally able to shoo the uninvited guest out of doors. Later that day, or perhaps it was the next, my companions and I stopped for tea at the Victoria Falls Hotel. This gracious, grand old lady of the falls, established in 1904, is set in the midst of lush, tropical gardens. It epitomizes the romance of travel, but it is also a place where, again, we were to be entertained by vervet monkeys. These impish creatures reminded me of the squirrels who frequented my bird feeders in New England. The vervets were just as numerous and just as mischievous. In another spot, on another day, three of these delightful fellows lined up on a log for me in perfectly profiled poses. What a great photo op they presented. When I was traveling some days later in a jeep en route somewhere, I spied three young warthogs off the road. I asked the driver to stop and raced into the bush to take some photographs. I was getting some fabulous shots when suddenly a question popped into my mind. Where's mummy? It was right about then that the foolhardiness of my impromptu mission became apparent to me. A large female warthog seemed to come out of nowhere to face me. I backed away respectfully, and thank God I was able to make it safely back to the Jeep. I learned a lesson that day. And I am truly grateful Mama Warthog left me alive to share it. Human beings can behave so foolishly. Human beings can abandon all reason, all common sense, when faced with a good photo op in the wild. I'll never forget a story told to me by Nevada Barr in an interview for another radio program. Barr, who is now an award-winning author of mysteries, spent many years as a park ranger. I nearly keeled over when she recounted how a friend who had worked in one of the national parks, had to write a man a ticket for smearing ice cream on his daughter's cheeks in hopes of getting a good picture of a grizzly licking it off. Good grief. But then when Jean and I were visiting Yellowstone, we couldn't believe our eyes when a woman attempted to put a child on the back of an elk or as we watched two young men leap from their vehicle to make a mad dash into the woods tripod and camera in hand, trying to get a close-up photo of a grizzly that we and they had spied some yards off the park road. Jean and I were quite content to remain at a more respectful distance. And thank God again, like my mama warthog, this grizzly allowed this pair of photogs to live another day. Yellowstone is the flagship of the National Park Service. And based on our experience, we would say it is the place in the country to see wildlife. Visitors can view much of the park from the comfort of a vehicle, or they may hike the miles and miles of trails to backcountry destinations. Yellowstone is spread out over 2,219,789 acres, making it larger than the states of Rhode Island and Delaware combined. Seven species of ungulates, bison, moose, elk, mule deer, mountain goat, bighorn sheep, and pronghorn. Two species of bear, grizzly and black, 67 other species of mammals, 322 species of birds, and 16 species of fish all call the park home. 
there are more than 1,100 species of native plants, more than 200 species of exotic plants, and more than 400 species of thermophiles, microorganisms that grow best at elevated temperatures. Yellowstone boasts 10,000 thermal features and more than 300 geysers. It has one of the world's largest petrified forests and more than 290 waterfalls. There are nine visitor centers and 12 campgrounds, with a combined total of 2,000 campsites. Yellowstone was the first national park established in the world, and it should be the first park on any list of places to visit. Yellowstone is, as I said, the place to see wildlife. Hints at that truth became immediately evident to us upon our arrival at the park. As we passed through Yellowstone's south entrance, we were greeted by a buffalo butt. We drove along for quite a distance, looking at the backside of this bull that just took his sweet, sweet time strolling down the road, unperturbed by, and seemingly oblivious to, the vehicles inching along behind him. Some days later, I'd see another bull and had planted himself next to the park's mud volcano, showing a similar disinterest in all the folks eagerly clamoring and clustering around him, trying to get the best photo. He'd plopped himself down for an afternoon sit, and that was that. On the walk up to the mud volcano could also be seen a jackrabbit, who was placidly sunning herself just a few inches away from a snake that was moving in her direction. One is certain to come across a good many bear jams, traffic delays, throughout Yellowstone as folks stop in their tracks, in their vehicles, or on foot whenever one of the park's denizens comes into view. And just before sunset, great numbers of folk compete for the best parking spots adjacent to Lamar Valley, which has come to be called by many America's Serengeti. Set in the park's northeast section, Lamar is renowned for its easy-to-see populations of charismatic megafauna. Among its most famous inhabitants are the Junction Butte and Lamar Canyon wolf packs. Other animals that roam the Lamar include large herds of bison, pronghorns, badgers, grizzly bears, bald eagles, osprey, deer, and coyotes. Another popular destination for wildlife viewing is Hayden Valley where visitors will often see herds of bison grazing and resting along the Yellowstone River that runs through it. The soil in this area permits little tree growth, and the shrub and grassland valley plants are frequented by grazing animals, from rodents to large ungulates like elk, moose, and bison. And they, in turn, attract predators, bears, coyotes, and wolves. Folks, pick a hillside, cop a squat, pull out the binoculars and cameras with their mega, mega telephoto lenses, and marvel. When you're visiting Yellowstone, you're warned to be alert for tracks, warned to stay away from carcasses, and warned to stay at least 100 yards away from not only bears, but wolves as well. You're wise to give other animals, bison, elk, bighorn sheep, deer, moose, and coyotes, at least 25 yards of breathing room. Bison are especially unpredictable and dangerous. They can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and can sprint 30 miles an hour. We did see quite a number of bison at Yellowstone, but I might note here that the largest concentrations of this creature that we've seen to date are found in Custer State Park in South Dakota. Let's take a break. When we return, we'll head to Colorado, where we'll find deer at a post office. Then we'll be on to South Dakota, where prairie dogs have contracted the bubonic plague, and where feral begging burrows, looking for a handout, boldly approach passersby. And then finally, we'll make our way to California, where in Death Valley, 
We'll consider the power of silence in the night. We'll be right back. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com You love your dog and getting kisses from them. But their breath can be downright stanky. Knock out their smelly breath with Stank Be Gone. Stank Be Gone is made with natural ingredients to eliminate their bad breath while helping to reduce plaque and tartar. Just add a capful to your dog's drinking water. Stank Be Gone is only $19.95. Use promo code STANK to receive a second bottle for just $5. Go to stankbegone.com today. That's stankbegone.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Wildlife Wild Places on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Donna Haleson. As we've been traveling about the country, one thing that's particularly struck me is that we have often seen large animals, white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, mountain goats, even bighorn sheep, in the middle of densely populated neighborhoods. In Manitou Springs, Colorado, we met two deer walking up the steps of the post office. In Estes Park, Colorado, we came across at least a dozen young elk grazing in a field adjacent to a retail complex. Not far from there, we saw another dozen or more bighorns scrambling up a hillside in a residential neighborhood. Scholarly papers have been written in recent years detailing the effects of residential development on wildlife in the Rocky Mountain states. One paper noted that white-tailed deer display a high adaptability to human activity. Studies suggest the deer often select high-quality forage near residential structures and benefit from the reduced number of predators found there. Elk, however, initially respond to the presence of humans with increased vigilance and flight. Large developments, such as ski areas, are altering elk distributions during sensitive periods such as fawning, and this is leading to a decrease in their populations. But now elk are are beginning to move to areas that have restrictions against hunting, such as private lands. As hunter-friendly ranches are increasingly being transformed into subdivisions, more land is becoming available as a refuge for elk during hunting seasons. Bighorn sheep are also now wandering about populated areas, searching for food and safety. Humans are crowding them out, and wise decisions will need to be made in the years ahead to equitably address these new realities. Well, sometimes human beings decide to let animals alone, to just be in their habitats. Humans adjust their patterns so as to coexist alongside other species. While living in Big Cypress National Preserve last year, we shared our days with not only magnificently plumed birds, 
but water moccasins and alligators as well. While living in Grand Canyon National Park another year, we developed greater stores of patience while waiting for bull elk to finish munching the greenery outside our door, and we adjusted to walking the dogs within close proximity of packs of coyotes. The key to coexistence was found in gaining knowledge about our wild neighbors. On a visit to Forever Florida, a 4,700-acre wildlife conservation center in St. Cloud, I was greeted by a muster of peacocks and peahens. While riding there in an all-terrain safari coach, I was especially intrigued by our guide's commentary on the cracker cattle, cracker oxen, and cracker horses that all call the adjacent Crescent J Ranch home. It turns out the animals trace their ancestry in direct line back to those first brought to Florida in the 1500s by Ponce de Leon. On the other side of the country, in South Dakota's Custer State Park, we found some relatives of those Spanish cracker horses, burros. Burros, and the name comes from the Spanish word for donkey, most likely derived from the African wild ass which survives in the semi-arid scrub and grasslands of Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia. This charismatic relative of the horse, long of ear and muzzle, might have been domesticated a continent away, but it now spends its days on the prairies and pine savannas of South Dakota's Custer State Park. At the park, the burrows are feral. They were introduced into the area by humans and have reverted to a wild or semi-wild state. More specifically, the park's donkey squad descends from pack animals once used for treks to the Harney Peak Summit. Now naturalized, they often plead for food from park tourists in places like the Wildlife Loop Road, where they quite frequently cause traffic jams. <laughs> Their boldness is such that they are now referred to as the Began Burrows. Jean and I, and Mac and Molly, were stunned and then fascinated to find the burrows poking their heads into the, our vehicle looking for a handout. This band of begging burrows, which word has it, especially crave crackers, is quite the racket going. Well, if we can coexist with other species, preserve the heritage of other species, and let the tamed of other species loose to be feral, perhaps we might also do what we can to ensure that still other species are protected so that they may continue to exist at all. Years ago, when Jean and I made our first trek across the country, we were amused and captivated by the antics of the very social, black-tailed prairie dogs whose communities we encountered while hiking near Devil's Tower in Wyoming. It broke my heart to hear that these little creatures have contracted the bubonic plague. Plague has been especially active in their populations in the northern Great Plains only within the last decade, but the plague was actually discovered among them as far back as 40 or more years ago. The disease appears to be spreading to encompass the entire range of the species. Some environmentalists and the National Wildlife Federation in particular are convinced the prairie dog has become an endangered species, even though millions still roam the Great Plains. Some of the research suggests that the numbers of prairie dogs have been reduced by 98% since 1900, reduced through plague, hunting, and other factors. And there are concerns about protecting the prairie dogs that go beyond their numbers. The well-being and the very survival of other species, perhaps most notably burrowing owls, appear to be dependent on prairie dogs. More attention is now being paid to what can be done to keep the prairie dogs from vanishing. As I recall, all these years later, the comical squeaks of the prairie dogs 
I think how sad it would be to hear those voices silenced. When Jean and I were camping in Death Valley, California, I realized one night that I was hearing not one sound, not an insect, not a bit of running water, not a single creature stirring, not an engine purring, not a cell phone ringing. Dead. Silence. I looked up to find a night sky, unblemished by light pollution, and awestruck I stood beneath the most spectacular, stellar display it has ever been my privilege to behold. As I strove to take it all in, I found myself as in that moment with the elephants of Wange, weeping. I was profoundly moved in that silence under that star-spangled sky, and as I recall those moments now, I seek the lessons in them. It was eye-opening. It was instructive to hear the soundlessness. I was led to think of the sounds of nature I would miss if I could never hear them again. The chirp of a robin, the chatter of a monkey, the rustle of the pronghorn moving through the grassland the powerful clambering of the bighorn as it makes its way up a stony hillside, the trumpet of an elephant, the call of a humpback whale, the groan of a walrus, the whinny of a horse, the bray of a burrow, the clicks of a dolphin, the barks of a prairie dog. How precious is this world which we call home, and how blessed we are to share that home with creatures that crawl and swim and fly, Creatures that amble and arc and strut and slither. Well, let's take one more break, and I'll be back with some quick bits in Nature News. So when we brought him home, we didn't realize that Bear the Rescue Dog was actually sick. He had very flaky skin. He was dropping a lot of fur. And Lavette wanted to do steroid injections, special dog food. Nothing seemed to work. So I've been hearing Dinovite on the radio for years. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. 859-428-1000. It never actually crossed my mind to try it until I was just at a dead end. And then it finally sunk in. Oh, you're talking about hair and skin. And all right, (laughs) I'll try it. Well, it took probably six weeks, but after we started using Dinovite, no more flaky skin. He doesn't scratch and itch, and he started to put weight on. It was was awesome. He makes us feel like we saved him. Every rescue dog in America deserves Dinovite for 90 days. I wish that we would have started the Dinovite right away. It would have been so much easier. 859-428-1000. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Begging to hear more of your favorite show? Full episodes of all our shows are available on demand. Go to PetLifeRadio.com to fetch our entire lineup of possum pet podcasts. Also, dig us up in iHeartRadio Talk and iTunes. Let's talk pets. Live and on demand only from Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We're back. Scientists, for the first time at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, have documented migratory movements of bird populations spanning the entire year for 118 species throughout the Western Hemisphere. Visit their website, All About Birds, and you'll find animated maps showing patterns of movement across the annual cycle. Fascinating. The World Conservation Congress is held once every four years and has been called the Olympics of the conservation world. 
The gathering helped set the agenda for the International Union for Conservation of Nature that is based in Switzerland and is the world's oldest and largest global environmental organization with more than 1,200 government and NGO members and nearly 11,000 volunteer experts in some 160 countries. The event brings together thousands of leaders and decision makers from government, civil society, indigenous peoples, business, and academia. In September of 2016, the Congress will meet in Honolulu. From an article in Britain's Guardian newspaper comes this. What do the golden lion tamarind, Przewalski's horse, the Puerto Rican parrot, and the Kehansi spray toad all have in common? Well, for one thing, they've all been on the brink of extinction. For another, they very likely wouldn't survive today if not for the work of zoos. Over the past century, zoos have played a crucial role in saving dozens, maybe hundreds, of species from extinction. Most often this work has stemmed from breeding captive animals inside zoo walls. But today more and more zoos are funding conservation in the field or even starting their own programs. Now a new report by the World Association of Zoos and Aquariums, WAZA, has called on these institutions to raise their ambitions by spending at least 3% of their operational budgets on conservation. WAZA, based in Switzerland, is the top global organization for the world's zoos and aquariums. It has a membership of 280 institutions and is connected to more than 20 regional zoological associations, representing hundreds of more zoos around the world. In 2008, WAZA estimated that the world's zoos and aquariums were spending around 230 million pounds, or about $328 million, on conservation efforts every year, including both captive breeding inside the institutions and supporting work in the field. But a new report notes that this could be boosted by nearly 200% if all WAZA institutions took on the challenge. The call for zoos to take their conservation efforts to the next level comes after scientists have been warning for decades that human activities are pushing life on Earth towards a mass extinction event, the first ever caused by a single species. According to a World Wildlife Federation 2014 report, global populations of vertebrates, mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish have dropped by a staggering 52% from 1970 to 2010. During the same time, the number of humans on the planet grew by nearly 3 billion. Beyond this, scientists believe that countless species, unnamed and unmonitored, are likely vanishing every year. Well, finally, for those in South Florida, here's an event that might be of interest to you. The National Park Service, along with the South Florida Amateur Astronomers Association, the International Dark Sky Association, South Florida Chapter, and the Everglades Astronomical Society, will be conducting night sky outings at the southern end of Sea Grape Drive, where the Welcome Center is located at 3300 Tamiami Trail in Ochopee. Other dark sky events are held in national parks throughout the country. Visit the website of one near you and set some time aside to take in the beauty of a star-spangled sky. And to learn more about what you can do to advocate for the protection of the night sky, 
and to promote environmentally responsible outdoor lighting, visit the website of the International Dark Sky Association. I do hope you'll make time today to get out into the natural world, listening for, looking out for, and celebrating the treasures that are all around us. Photographs, some of the places and animals mentioned in this episode, can be found in the blog that accompanies this program. I invite you to visit that page, and when you do, please share comments and conservation news as ideas come to you. And of course, I invite you to tune in next time as we head out to explore wildlife, wild places. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.